From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The abundance of deer ticks throughout central New York fuels the fear of Lyme disease. With us today is Dr. Christopher Polino, an assistant professor of medicine specializing in infectious disease and the director of clinical research at Upstate's Center for Global Health and Translational Science. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, prevention is the best strategy, I assume. Insect repellents, removing ticks promptly, reducing tick habitats. But despite our prevention efforts, um, it's really not that unusual to find a tick after visiting a park or even playing in the backyard. So if someone finds a tick on themselves or their child, what should they do? So, uh, you know... Some some places don't advocate saving the ticks. I I prefer to see the tick to make sure that it is a deer tick. Um, so save it in a plastic bag. Save or? it in a plastic bag, some kind of a container where obviously it won't escape and potentially put anybody in the household at risk. Um, but you know here at Upstate, um, you know the infectious disease providers um, can recognize the adult ticks, and if there's a question, we have entomology colleagues who we could easily either bring the, the tick to or send a picture of the tick and, and they can help identify it. And that way it kind of determines whether or not you're at risk for Lyme disease because the Ixodes capillaris deer tick is really the only one that's going to uh, carry the disease um, as opposed to some of the uh, other ticks that you could see in the area. Interesting. So that would be helpful it to would be. remove it and save it. Okay. Um, now, Lyme disease is not something that develops overnight. I mean, if you get bitten or remove a tick one day, you're not going to wake up with the bullseye rash the next morning, right? Right. Yeah. Typically, um, if you get a if you get a tick bite, you may get a local reaction to the tick bite itself, to the salivary proteins and whatnot, and you can get a little lesion at the bite with a little surrounding redness. The bullseye rash is more distinct. It's usually five centimeters or bigger uh, in diameter. And it usually occurs about a week to two, maybe three weeks after the initial bite. Um, It can be accompanied by kind of acute symptoms uh, where you have the early localized Lyme disease where it's at the site. may have some fevers, chills, flu-like symptoms. Um, People have described it to me as as feeling like you have the flu without any of the respiratory symptoms. Um, And then um, after you get those kind of generalized symptoms, the aches and the pains and whatnot, um, there are other syndromes that you can develop. There's uh, early disseminated Lyme, which um, can present with uh, heart findings where you can get the electro- electrical activity of the heart can be dis- um, disorganized and you can go into heart block and that has its own symptoms, typically fatigue, uh, potentially chest pain. Um, and then there's other uh, aspects as well, uh, similar uh, to uh, uh, things like uh, uh, meningitis. So there's a Lyme meningitis that you can get with bad headaches. You can get Bell's palsy, uh, which half the face is basically paralyzed. Um, and then there's also the, uh, the, uh, the arthritis that can occur as well as you kind of get later in, into the uh, development of the, the disease itself. Are these like complications of Lyme? Or are they more severe cases of Lyme or? Yeah, I mean, everybody's different. Um, and, and depending on whether or not you receive treatment early enough, um, you could develop some of these more complicated cases. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a question of whether or not the, uh, the spirochete, which is the organism that causes Lyme, actually infects these tissues or if it's more of an immune response. Um, you know, there's some, some differing opinions out there about that. So, um, it, it is essentially a spectrum of complications, like you could see with really any any type of infection. 
So if you end up with this um, flu feeling without the respiratory and you remember having a tick encounter, Mm -hmm. um, you end up going to your primary care doctor, I assume. Mm -hmm. How does he or she diagnose that it's Lyme? So there's a couple things. So, you know, going back to finding the tick, if you find a tick on you and you bring it in and it's, it's obviously engorged with blood, there is a prophylactic uh, regimen uh, where you can take an antibiotic for a single uh, dose. And it has been shown in a very small study to prevent the development of Lyme disease. Now, if it's beyond that time frame and you have the bullseye rash and, you know, potentially the other symptoms, you know, in an endemic area such as ours and, and the rest of the Northeast, if you see that bullseye rash in the summertime, early, uh, late spring or uh, early fall where the ticks are still active, that in and of itself is diagnostic. It uh, is. Yeah. If you see a bullseye rash in this area and you have any of the other symptoms, yeah, I would call that Lyme disease and I would treat you as, as such. Um, as far as some of the other symptoms, um, you know, if somebody comes in with bad headache, uh, the Bell's palsy that I had mentioned with uh, the facial asymmetry, um, the cardiac complications, generally uh, you take those clinical syndromes and you pair it with a serologic test where you actually measure antibodies to Lyme disease. And there's a screening test and a confirmatory test. Um, now, there are some drawbacks to this test. Um, they're basically, um, they require your body to have an, a functioning immune system. So, you know, one of the drawbacks and one of the criticisms that many have with the diagnostics of Lyme is, you know, it may not work for everybody. Um, so the sensitivity may not be as good as, uh, as one would hope. There are uh, a couple other tests out there. Um, there's a C6 antigen test, which is a uh, you know, a newer FDA-approved test. It's not currently in the guidelines, although um, I'm sure they'll add that to the guidelines um, in the next year when they come out. And then there's also um, other more molecular tests like PCR, where you can actually look and try to find DNA of the Lyme disease. Not really a great test since the organism isn't usually abundant in the bloodstream. Really the best place to test with that particular assay would be in um, you know, a joint aspiration where you actually stick a needle in an affected joint and you, you test for the DNA there. Um, not everyone gets the bullseye rash though, right? Mm-mm, no, so. uh, many people don't. Um, and that's where it really gets difficult because, you know, you may have like a nonspecific flu-like illness. It could have been Lyme. You may not have had the rash and then you don't get treated right away. And, and typically the people who go on and develop more of the chronic symptoms that you hear about are people who don't get diagnosed and treated early on. And unfortunately, about 10 to 20% of Lyme patients do go on to develop these kind of chronic syndro- uh, syndromes um, that, that can be very debilitating um, and, and very disturbing to, to the patients that are affected. So if you find a, a tick and remove a, tr- a tick, it's better to come in and be seen and get treated then mm-hmm. rather than waiting to see if you develop these symptoms or Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, earlier is always better when it comes to, to most diseases uh, and infections in particular. So uh, I would agree. Okay. Well, I've got some more questions, but first, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Christopher Paulino. So once Lyme is diagnosed, how is it treated? So there's a there's a handful of drugs that are uh, are classically used to treat uh, Lyme disease. The most common one is doxycycline. Um, it's, it's a very versatile antibiotic that can be used for a variety of different things. Um, 
you know, when uh, when I was in the military, we used it uh, for malaria prophylaxis for quite a long period of time for people deploying overseas. Um, it's also quite active against uh, various uh, tick-borne illnesses, so not just Lyme disease, but things like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anaplasmosis, or lichiosis, mm -hmm. other things that we could potentially see. Um, generally, if you have early infection with Lyme disease, you can treat for about a 10 to 14 day period. Um, so if you see a bullseye rash, that should be sufficient. Um, some providers recommend going three weeks. Um, and then for some of the other uh, syndromes, like the, uh, the heart syndrome that I had mentioned, the, card mm -hmm. uh, the carditis, or the meningitis, uh, generally we treat for uh, 21 to 28 days. And in, in some of those cases, we'll start with an intravenous drug called ceftriaxone. Um, and, and that uh, also has great activity uh, against Lyme and, and typically does, uh, does the trick in terms of treating the patient. Again, some patients will have some of these chronic uh, symptoms that may persist for weeks or months afterwards. Um. Where are we with a vaccine? If, if we have so much Lyme around, is, yeah. would that be better to be able to vaccinate people? So, so yeah, there, so a little bit of history. So there, there was a vaccine that was FDA approved uh, going back several years that had been withdrawn from the market. Um, there was some question of whether or not it was causing some of the uh, joint symptoms and um, uh, other symptoms of Lyme disease. Uh, and uh, it was a fairly good vaccine but because of the um, because of the criticism of it, it, it did get pulled. Um, because we we do have this massive influx of uh, ticks and, and subsequent tick-borne illnesses, um, we've uh, we've seen more interest in developing a vaccine. And there is a vaccine that's in development uh, from a European country country that's actually going to be uh, tested here in the United States, in addition to other places. So hopefully, it's coming. Hopefully. Okay. And what happens if someone goes untreated? If they ignore the symptoms and so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, one of the one of the concerning things is the the cardiac uh, manifestations. Um, you know, you can go into complete heart block, um, and and that can have its own consequences uh, and uh, and potentially be uh, uh, a fatal complication. Um, what most people end up having is these chronic joint symptoms and chronic just feeling fatigued, uh, headaches. Um, people describe a memory fog. Uh, where they just can't think clearly. Um, and this can happen either without treatment or with treatment. Um, there's, there's really two camps that are looking at Lyme disease. There are people who um, consider this a post-Lyme disease syndrome, uh, where it's uh, an acute infection with potential damage to the nerves during the infection, and then a potential autoimmune or immunologic phenomenon that causes inflammation chronically. And these symptoms, as I said, can go on for weeks, months, and sometimes in some cases, years. Um, and then there's the, the other camp um, that thinks this is a chronic infection where there's uh, persistent uh, bacteria causing these symptoms. Um, although, you know, most of, the, most of the, the studies that have looked at randomized control trials um, don't really support that, that, second, um, that second side. But there are two, two groups that, um, that, that feel that there's different things that need to be done. And there's uh, patients, not you said, I think 10 to 20% that mm -hmm. may end up having chronic symptoms. So right. what do they do? Yeah, so it's really difficult. Um, you know, there's there's really no great therapies for these uh, chronic symptoms, and it's it's mostly supportive as of right now. Um, you know, some people um, who believe this is a chronic infection advocate for a chronic course of antibiotics. 
Again, uh, the data doesn't really support that. Um, and then there's also a lot of kind of supplemental uh, therapies, um, supplements that are used um, by some providers, and they can be quite expensive. Um, you know, I've heard some patients, you know, say that they pay five hundred to a thousand dollars a month just to pay for these. Um, you know, my thought is, you know, we don't really have good data to support this, um, and it would be best if we could do a randomized control trial looking at patients. Uh, who receive these supplements? Who you know, you know who uh, who receive the supplements compared to people who don't, and see if to they see actually what, work. Whether they work. Yeah, and if you can get some grants that can support the research, you know, people wouldn't have to pay out of pocket. The the cost of the drugs and the supplements would be, you know, out of the grant, um, and people wouldn't have to you know remortgage their houses in some instances to yeah. pay for the therapy. Well, well, that's interesting. Thank you for taking the time to talk about this. Yeah. My guest has been Dr. Christopher Paulino, an infectious disease specialist at Upstate, who also directs clinical research at Upstate's Center for Global Health and Translational Science. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.